0: Yeah you start cleaning And you started doing stuff You were able to function Crack was different Crack as soon as you did it Right And the high wore off In in like a couple of minutes You were out there Trying to find the next hit You know There was no stopping You lose all self respect Because you know You don't care about your, your hygiene You don't care about your health All you want is that next hit That's
1: Dennis Barton telling us a bit of the story he shares in the new book, Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing. The book follows the lives of formerly homeless New Yorkers who graduated from a life skills program and now help others by sharing their experience with healing and forgiveness. I'm Robin Shannon and on today's Fordham Conversations, We have part two of our interview with Dennis Barton and James Addison, whose stories appear in the book Sacred Shelter. We also hear from Fordham University professor Susan Greenfield, who serves as the book's editor. Here's more from Dennis Barton.
0: So sometimes you're out in the streets, you know, 24-7. You're out there three, three or four days, you know, straight, just getting high, and then you'll crash. Yeah, Crack was an insidious drug, and and I think we're seeing the effects of it with with people nowadays. You know, the children who are coming up from that era. Yeah.
1: yeah. Susan, did you find um, that was the story with some of the other people who you interviewed for the book?
2: Well, it's interesting because that's the same question I I wondered about, like what was it about crack in particular? And one of the things that was pretty consistent across the stories of the people who had um, begun using crack uncontrollably was that the intensity and pleasure of the high coupled with the shortness of the high Mm -hmm. and the cheapness of the drug Mm -hmm. caught you in this terrible spiral because you would have this sensation, it would go away, you would need it again. You didn't quite have the money to get it, but you could hustle up the money fast enough to get it. You would get it, you would have the high, it would be really quick, it would go away. And you were back out there. And that was my sense, that it was the combination, I don't know if you guys agree, but it was the combination of the experience of the high, the shortness of the high, the cheapness of it, but then, in the process of of this, people would lose all their money. they'd lose everything they had, so even though it was cheap, hustling up the the money to even just get the next fix, particularly if you're doing it several times a day, right yeah becomes a lifetime occupation, and that was what I think it was that that terrible combination and to me, it's um of course. I mean, many people know that crack ended up being punished much more heavily than, than powdered yeah. cocaine and other kinds of drugs that afflicted um, white people uh, more than something like crack. But to me, it was the um, combination, right? The fact that it was so cheap so and so accessible on the one hand, and yet the need for it was so constant. And so it
1: was cheap but expensive,
0: it 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 was yeah. it was cheap, right? But you know, and 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 so like I said, you, you know, it cost you a lot. You were out, you were right back out there. Ten minutes later, thinking about where I'm gonna get the next hit. So you look over in the corner. There's your TV. Let me sell that, you know. Once that's gone, well, uh, let me sell the kids' bikes. I've seen that happen, you know and that's what it was. You were constantly in a in a mode where's the next one coming from? And you would do anything, almost anything and to almost get anything. it. Almost anything. You know,
3: even if it meant taking from your kids. I mean, um I you know what what it did to neighborhoods. Exactly. I mean, what it did to families. Um um destroyed whole families. I mean, um you know, um what, what, what the women on crack had to go through out there on the streets. Um, you know, I, I ask God for forgiveness every day for some of the things that I've seen and some of the things that I've done out there. That's how, um, you know, destructive it is. And, and so I feel like, you know, um, that, that my life now, you know, um, I feel that the calling on my life now is is to help others who are out there so that so that my life and my story and that 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 my story is important because it gives hope to others and 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 and, and, and I dedicate my life to 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 helping others who are caught up in that vicious cycle of um it's not an easy thing to get out and you know uh, society will just stop you know just stop doing it well it, it's not that easy um and and it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of patience it takes a loving community to help you to get through um all of the trauma and and everything that you've had to go through you know and so that's why this book is so important you know um because it because it's 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 all of us in this together and and the people in the book, the mentors and but it's all of us healing and getting better together, you know. And yeah. and, and that's the beauty of, of of this book and 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 you know and, and of Susan's vision. Um, you know, um I jumped right on it because I just knew that it was gonna help a lot of people.
0: And and, and, and I wanna say, you know, everything that James just said about his calling. That is the truth. I graduated from the life skills program. All right. I think I was a, mem- a member of the 26th class. And it was suggested that I would go to, to the men's group at Life and Faith Sharing. Right. And that's where I met James. And I went down there, and it was a bunch of men. We would meet on 72nd Street in the church, and we would have a spiritual meeting and, and you know, a lunch. And it was a great thing. That helped me through. As I went into my recovery, that helped me through. And as I said earlier, me and James got to kicking it one day and on a retreat found out that we grew up in the same neighborhood. (laughs) We had, he used to come and visit a friend in the building where I was living at, right? We both went to the boys club, Mm -hmm. right? Our families were from the same, we might be cousins, (laughs) (laughs) from the same from the same, same town, town, down south the same town, and the town the town is you know like if you blink, you miss it, <laughs> so we might be cousins, but james, I've watched James over the years, I've watched James over the years he's gone out he goes out with with his team and he goes to to shelters, he goes to to penn station and and those places where and gives out sandwiches, invites people in, you know um. For me, for me, you know, going out and sharing my stories around the tri-state area, you know, trying to give a face to and a story behind, trying to change the stereotypes that people have around homelessness. Um, That's what it is for me, Um, you know, going back into communities and doing what I can. Um, I think for both James and I, we both um, um, adhere to to scripture in a way, you know, for us, this is ministry. This is ministry. I now work for a, an organization where they have trained me to go out and, and do parent workshops. And and every time I go into one of them workshops, this is part of my ministry. This is part of what I'm doing. Because sometimes the people in, in those workshops, they've experienced some of the same things we have. So James and I, we do it in 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 similar but different ways. And, 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 but it's ministry for us. This is a, God has given us a chance to give back to our communities, to try to help others, to try to stem the tide of homelessness, try to stem the tide of drug use, try to stem the tide of mass incarceration. Can I say that? (laughs) Because, you know, um, and, and, and I want to be quick about this. My brother told me something when I was very young. He said, he said, Pony, he said, if a black man do it, there's a law against it. Or they'll make a law against it. And we see that played out every day in the news. Right. So we have to fight for each other. And it's brothers like James and his team, the the the, the men and women of the team at LEFSA, uh, the the team of people at Catholic Charities, the team of people at, at Interfaith Assembly, the, the, the speakers who go out and share their stories, the people in this book who were willing to bear it all in order to help others.
1: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, speaking with Fordham University professor Susan Greenfield. She serves as editor of Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing, It's a new book out right now. And also joining us are James Addison and Dennis Barton, who are two of the 13 people who are sharing their experiences through this new book. Now, let's back up a little to the homelessness and then the recovery, because I don't want to miss out on that. So help me understand the recovery process that you each had to go through.
3: Well, um, I was homeless in in Fort Washington Men's Shelter in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, This was one of the most vicious shelters in the city at that time. It was called Fort Washington Men's Shelter. The nickname of this shelter was called the House of Pain because it was so much pain in there. Um, But it was there that I started my recovery in in that hellhole. Um,
1: but what made that different than the other times you tried to get help or do you try to come through recovery? Wasn't
2: in the story you talk first about learning about you're going to be a grandfather and then sister Dorothy. Yes,
3: yes, yes. I was, I went to my father's job to hustle him for some money, um, you know, as I always did at times, you know, and when I got there, my father said, this is my real father, he said... Not the stepdad who not, was mean. Not the stepdad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my good guy. Yeah, my real father. Who you
1: said used to come often to look for you, and to sometimes you would let him find you,
3: and sometimes you, you couldn't. Oh, you read that book, yeah. Um, um, so I went to hustle him some money, and he said, Son, you're going to be a grandfather, and... I said a grandfather. I'm gonna be a grandfather and I don't even know my daughter. I have a son somewhere who's out there. I haven't seen him since he was three years old. And mind you, you're pretty young. You're in your thirties at this time. I'm I'm like thirty nine, mm-hmm. forty years old at this time. And um and I'm a grandfather. And and I and at that point, I just, I just, something just hit me like an epiphany or something, like an awakening, you know, it's like, man, you got to get it together. And, and that, that's what propelled me. And, and I had a different mindset leaving my father's job. I remembered these two nuns who used to come to, who come to the shelter on Tuesday.
1: The crazy nuns? The
3: crazy nuns. <laughs> <laughs> A
2: <laughs> we should name them. We should give their names.
3: Sister Dorothy and Sister Ther- Teresa. Theresea. Yeah.
1: And well, first, what made them crazy? This was a shelter
3: of a thousand men, mostly black, Hispanic. And it's crazy in there. <laughs> and you have these two little white women walking around in there asking if you want to come to a group. You know, it's... <laughs>
2: You're like, lady.
1: What's <laughs> wrong with y'all? <laughs> <laughs>
3: but guess what?
2: I love that story.
3: I went to that group that day because I, I wanted something and I needed something. And, and I'd heard about the group, so I went there. And I'll tell you, that was, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life because in that group I I I got connected with other people who who were in the same kind of thing and you know I was I'm I'm thinking that you know um boy you know nobody will understand what I went through my story you know but there are others there and and they created a safe place there where we could get together and talk about our life experience you know and 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 we would talk about our life experience, and then we would look and see what God's word had to say about our life experience. It was an empowerment model, and so I went there for months, and and that's when Sister Teresa said, "I, I know a program. It's a life skills program at Catholic Charities. I think you would be good for it," and and I had three months clean, uh, and. I went to that. I went there. And that's why I met the life skills program.
1: So what it sounds like you're saying is you began to have a support system of people who were telling you how good you were and telling you how you could get help in changing your perspective. Is, is that it? Yeah, because,
3: you know, um, I, I've been getting remember. I've been getting high since I was 13, 12 years old. I. At this point, I don't know how to stop getting high. I don't. I don't know how to stop. So, 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 what was told me? If you don't know how to stop, then you better get around some people who do. (laughs) You know that's simple, and that's what I started doing. And I started hanging out with these people. um, And it it wasn't. And it was a hard road for me because uh, money was a trigger for me. Everything was a trigger for me. You know, so I had to go. I had to go maybe the first year in my recovery uh, of not handling money. Mm. You know, yeah. or if I did get money, I, I had to have somebody with me at all times, you know, to kind of help me. So that's where the support system came in at. You know, um um it, it's for me it, it, and for a lot of addicts, it's just not easy to 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 stop just like that and you really do need that support.
2: Can I just add something here, too, because I think what James alluded to and what you alluded to, Robin, is one of the messages in the book that, you know, help is a kind of complicated structure because it can often be demeaning to feel like you're getting help, right, or you're needing help. But one of the things that comes out in the book is that it really depends on who is offering help and how they are looking at you. Mm-hmm. And if they are looking at you as an equal and as someone with dignity and goodness mm-hmm. and something to offer, which is definitely what those crazy sisters did. Absolutely. And what the other people in the and community the who skills, are homeless... life yeah. skills program. I mean, you can get that both from people who are in your situation and people who are, you know, associated with institutions helping. But that makes all the difference. How are you being perceived. And when you know that you're being perceived as an equal, when you know that it's not, yeah, you have this problem, but it's not because you're a lower, less inferior human being. It's because you happen to have this problem. But I see you and I see greatness in you. That's, you know, that's, that's help. That's not pity. You know, that's help. That's not demeaning i'm not one to throw out cliches but this one's such a good one that's help that's there but for the grace of god go i exactly
0: you know you know robin um james and i we came to it from different different ways you know i tried once (laughs) i tried once i i can truthfully say i've only been in a drug program once and that was way back in the 70s i was a drug addict for almost 33 years Fourteen of those years I spent living on the streets of New York. After two felony convictions, my second felony conviction, I was 49 years old. I got in the paddy wagon that night, handcuffed, and I I looked and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. It seems like
1: there are little breadcrumbs that are being left throughout your life. People are saying certain things. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. are encouraging you in certain ways. Incidents are happening that stick with you and Ultimately, they can either do one or two things. Either there'll be something that help you get through whatever struggles you're going through or we'll push them to the side and decide that, you know, we're going to keep going down this path of destruction. So I don't even know how you would begin to know the difference.
0: I think I think that's where that's where God comes in for me. You know, I'm just going to say my mama used to send me to church every Sunday. You know, when I was little, she laid the foundation for me. You know, I went out there. It's like the prodigal son. I went out there and acted like an idiot, right? I acted like an idiot, spent all my money, lost everything. And then one day I remembered my father, the only father that I know. And that was a God I believe in. And I went to him with it. And I'm going to say this. I went to him with it. Now, God didn't open up no jailhouse doors (laughs) for me. You know, he did in, in his own time. He opened them in his own time, not instantaneously. Um, he didn't give me everything I wanted right then and there, but he gave me what I needed to get what I wanted. For me, God showed up, and I showed up for him. That's how I feel. And I think I think James James knows what I'm talking about. Today, you know, I'm married today, you know. Um, you know, Have a I,
3: relationship with your, your, your with, kids? With my kids, me and my and grandkids. 13 of them.
1: Susan, can I ask? Well, first, let's back up a little bit. But you were sort of going through a little something yourself. Um, Right. Do you want to share your challenge?
2: Sure. Um, So I guess the year was 2009. And I was struggling with depression, which is something that's happened in my life before. And... um, I was feeling a lot of insecurity about various things. Plus, my daughter had just gone to college. Um, I still had one child home, but it was a huge transition for me. And I just wasn't feeling very well. And um, I was at a some kind of meeting at our synagogue, and um, the rabbi came in and he said, you know, Interfaith Assembly on Homelessness and Housing, is we're going to help run this life skills program. Um, and the program that our synagogue helped create um, is called Panim El Panim, which means face-to-face in Hebrew. And he said, we need some mentors. And I thought, yes, I'll go help someone else and then I'll feel better. It was sort of like <laughs> I'd get the Freud of, you know, being around someone who was worse off than me or whatever kind of strange thing that flipped through my mind. And so I went and... um Actually, Dennis was the facilitator. Dennis was the leader of that group. And I met Dennis, and I was like, that is the best guy ever. He's got to be my friend. <laughs> it took him a very long time to actually figure out who I was and what my name was. But that's okay. <laughs> I forgive him. And, um, but he knew to pair me up with Rodney Allen, who's also in the book. And Rodney, of course, he had been through much harder situation than me, but his life was in the process of transformation. He was having a spiritual awakening that I could only imagine. You know, I I had never had such an experience. I, I don't think I have yet had quite that experience. And instead of feeling, I guess what I thought, which was somehow like by helping him, I would feel better about my life or somehow, you know, his appealed to me, his kind of sense that on some level I was helping him when really all I was doing was showing up, gave me a kind of self-confidence that I really needed at that time, you know, me with all my fancy degrees, Um, but that also being in the presence of someone who was having this kind of transformation after having had such a hard time was just inspiring. It was something that I can't quite put into words. It was sort of like basking in the glow of somebody else's transition. And, you know, I got out of my depression. I started to help people with their stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: And the thing I I appreciate um, uh, about the book is you touch on these individuals and their stories and their struggles and their triumphs. But you also dig a little into New York politics and yeah. and why it is, uh, you know, poverty was escalating and how the loss of jobs and manufacturing affected homelessness and the environment. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a history book that you can kind of get a taste of what New York City was like at this time and why it evolved into where it might be today or where it might be going.
2: Right. You know, that was, that was a real challenge for me because as an academic, I tended to see things in more socioeconomic terms. And I was very aware in working on this book that, um, you know, it's there are 13 people, eight of the people are African-American. That's no coincidence demographically in New York City, the largest percentage of people who are homeless remain African-American. It's not exclusive by any means. Um, I was very aware of kind of the challenges of representing a situation that has a lot to do with injustice and inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality, um, a history of housing segregation, um, even the nature of certainly a history of mass incarceration. I'm also not a historian. I'm a literature person. I'm not a sociologist. I'm a literature person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a literature person. And so there was a lot I didn't know and I couldn't pretend to to give an introduction that someone of you know, with that background would give. I I can't do that. But the one thing I knew was that the stories really did need a broader perspective or some kind of framework. Because or when an individual would tell their stories in the book in this book, right, they're they're not saying this happened to me because of, you know, this kind of discrimination and housing inequity and segregation and the loss of manufacturing jobs. And nor should they. No one's you know, few people see their lives in those terms. Um but I was very aware that it'd be too easy to generalize about individual mistakes. Well both James in this interview, both James and Dennis were talking about how hard it is to overcome addiction. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I experienced in working on this book was just recognizing that, that what the people in the book have accomplished by um, working through these obstacles and over you know and, and being homeless and then not being homeless, that, that the courage, the strength, the resilience, all of the qualities that made that that was harder than getting a PhD. You know, it's not just hard because it's crack, it's hard because it's an incredible accomplishment. You know, and it's not one that we tend to um describe as equivalent to something like getting a PhD or becoming a doctor. But when you really hear the story you realize, my God, how many people could do that?
3: I wanna talk about the, the, the mental illness aspect of homelessness. On my team there was a his name was Vaughn and his attitude bothered me a lot, you know, because he was like this Militant, you know, he he was
1: And what team is this?
3: Um life experience and Facial, whom I work for now. The ministry but, team. The ministry mm-hmm. team, yeah. And um and one day I said, Bon, you know, it bothers me, you know, how, how aggressive you are. How aggressive you are. And he said he said, James, uh, let me tell you why I'm like that. And he said, Do you know how hard it is for me just to get out of the bed? He said, The voices that I hear the voices that that i have to fight every day just to get out of the bed during the day he said i have to be like this now i understand him now i you, you know and and when you hear these stories like this you know i mean you got you have to applaud
0: them and 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 learning to listen learning to listen is another part of it you know you yourself being able to listen and to listen to others' uh, uh, experiences and drawing strength from that. you know? Um, I want to touch on something that, that, that you said earlier, Robin, about being well. I never use that word.
2: Why?
0: I'm never well, because as soon as I think I'm well, I get in trouble. I, I think that we, you know, people like James and myself, you know we understand, we've been through struggles. You know, but it's still a struggle. It's still a struggle. It's not as hard as it once was, but it's still a struggle. You know? We've learned how to struggle well. Well, We know how. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We know how to struggle well. You know?
1: And James, can I ask you, do you feel comfortable reading just this little bit of a paragraph out of the book?
3: I don't think I have to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Or say it. You can read it. Say it however you
0: want to
3: do it. Okay. One day when my father picked me up to take me to his house, he said, you know, Arthur, I'm proud of you. And I got very angry and I said, look at me, daddy. I'm dirty. I'm, 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 I'm a drug addict. Just, just look at me. What do you mean you're proud of me? My father said, son, I'm not proud of the things that you've done or the things that you've got involved in, but I'm proud that you're my son. Mm. I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And I do the same thing with my grandkids today when they, you know, my father gave me that. He's proud just, just because I'm his son.
1: I'd like to thank Susan Greenfield, James Addison, and Dennis Barton. The book, Sacred Shelter, 13 Journeys of Homelessness and Healing, is out now from Fordham Press. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and catch up on shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.